Godly grief is constructive in the life of the disciple because it leads to deep repentance, which brings comfort and joy, as we have just sung the joy or pray the joy of God's salvation returns. And ultimately, it results in a resolve of the disciple to work towards restoration of that which has been lying in ruins because of sin. Let us pray. God, our Father, as we come to this text of Scripture focused on Matthew 5 and verse 4, help us to see what it means to have godly grief, not only over our sin, but the sin of others. Help us to see our need for deep repentance. Help us to see the comfort of your grace. And Father, work such that we would have a resolve to seek restoration of that which lies in ruin due to our sin. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In our current sermon series, we're looking at the portrait of a disciple through the words of Jesus in the Beatitudes as we seek to be reminded of these fundamental things of what it means to follow Jesus as his disciple. So if you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 as we read this passage, verses 3 through 12. Again, focus on verse 4 today. And the scripture is also in your bulletin beginning on page 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. It is perfect, reviving the soul. And may God the Holy Spirit work that perfect word in our souls and hearts today. You may be seated. I came face to face with the sinfulness of sin. Some of you have joined Renee and myself in the 40 Days of Life prayer vigil that we've had on several occasions where groups of covenant folk, typically on a Saturday, will sit on the other side of the street from the abortion clinic here in West Little Rock. And we pray for an hour each. And so on the last 40 days of life vigil, Ray and I had the 7 o'clock shift along with another covenant family. 
And we began praying. The clinic did not open until 8 o'clock, but we were there praying at 7. About 7.30, a car drove up or down the street, but instead of turning into the abortion clinic, it actually turned into the parking lot adjacent to the abortion clinic, and the car just sat there for a while. And so Ray and I prayed for whoever was in that car not knowing exactly what the situation was until the car drove away. The driver looked like a mom and the passenger looked like a young daughter. And it was clear to me that they were sitting there working through that decision should we go through with this? Should this young daughter go and have an abortion? And so they drove away. And I was glad because of one baby saved. But just before the clinic opened, the car appeared again. And instead of turning into an adjacent parking lot to the abortion clinic, it turned into the abortion clinic parking lot, not to emerge before we left. And I can only assume that the decision was made to abort that child. And I remember experiencing a deep sense of sorrow over the likely outcome, a baby losing its life to the hand of a physician, murder. I lamented the harm that will come to that young lady in the future if she goes through with that abortion. That's why we have deeper still. It's not if an aborted mother will struggle, but really when. Sadness, lament, grieve over the fact that abortion is so prevalent in our country, so much outrage over injustice in our land, and yet silent when it comes to the greatest injustice that is perpetrated in this country today, abortion. Where is the outcry? I felt sorrow over our nation allowing such a sin. A sin that is the epitome of offensiveness to Creator God. Where an image bearer of God is intentionally killed by the will of man. And I mourned over my own sin. Complacency. The fact of the matter is I experienced in, in a small measure, in a moment in time, a measure of grief 
over my personal sin and not being more outraged over abortion. I mourn the sin of this young lady and this mother. I mourn the sin of the staff that week in and week out not only perform abortions but support those who perform abortions. I mourn our country that by and large turns a blind eye to this injustice, selective outrage over things that may have importance but not as important as a human life. I grieve over a country that is so complicit in the taking of an innocent life, by the way, of all races. Lament, grief over the sinfulness of sin. And I simply am left with this question, why do I, and maybe you would say the same in joining me, why do we not grieve more? The second beatitude flows from the first, poor in spirit, acknowledging our sin, acknowledging we are nothing before God, no self-esteem because of our deplorable state before God. Compared to his holiness as Isaiah, we are unclean, objects of his wrath. And flowing out of that first beatitude is the second that naturally flows into having a mournful spirit grieving over our sin and grieving over the sin of others. Today we'll look and consider godly grief whose purpose is to bring us to repentance wherein we find comfort by the gospel of Jesus Christ, by his atoning work, and we should resolve to be about and to seek God for restoration of that which has been lying in ruins because of sin. That's our task today. We begin with godly grief over sin. The death of a loved one is hard to bear. The natural response is grief. We experience anguish and grief over suffering all sorts of material losses, financial, homes, jobs, even expectations. There are people with certain temperaments, melancholy, morose, that just naturally are a bit gloomy. And yet Jesus is not referring to any of these types of grief and mourning, these physical or material reasons to be sorrowful. He is focused on one reason and one reason only in this beatitude. And it is having godly grief over sin. To be 
brokenhearted and contrite, as we read in Psalm 51, even to the extent of agonizing over the sinfulness of sin. And I like that old Puritan phrase, the sinfulness of sin, because it begins to help us get at the fact that sin is first and foremost an offense against holy God. The sinfulness of sin. Jesus' primary focus is on personal sin, I believe, in this beatitude. James describes the situation in James chapter 4. If you want to turn there, please turn to James chapter 4 and verse 9. Where, obviously, James's concern is his readers being rather lighthearted about life. Not being very introspective about their life. Kind of just almost not even contemplating their sin. He characterizes them by laughter, just having a good time as they walk down the road of life. And he says in James 4 verse 9, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. What a stern rebuke of people who are not serious about sin, who rarely, if ever, grieve and mourn over the sinfulness of sin in their own soul and in their world. Lloyd-Jones said, the Christian is not superficial in any sense, but is fundamentally serious. And I have a feeling that we forget that. Our sin against God is the most serious reality that we face. The Beatitude, though, is not merely, even though I think primarily and immediately Jesus has in mind the disciple and his or her own sin, but yet this beatitude can be extended to include the sin of others. And I believe that's an extrapolation, a, a helpful extrapolation of this beatitude. Paul paints a troubling picture of the church in Corinth. And we all know about the church in Corinth. They were struggling with division and preferring this preacher over that preacher. And then Paul says in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. You see, in the Corinthian church, there were those who were committing gross sin. And yet the rest of the church was just lighthearted about it, not really dealing with it. And Paul says, you should mourn and grieve over a brother or sister caught in sin. 
the rhetorical question in verse 2 is convicting. Ought you not rather to mourn? And does that describe you and me? As we see sin in the church, not just our church, but the church universal or the Christian community universal, and it doesn't have an effect on us. We do not grieve. When Jesus wept, he grieved over those in Jerusalem that would reject him as Messiah, Luke 19. In Daniel 9, the prophet mourns and grieves over the condition of his people in exile and pleads for mercy for Jerusalem. All of this is in response to Jeremiah's prophecy of which Daniel read. As Christ's disciples, we are meant to have godly grief over our sin and over the sin of others in the church and outside the church, over the sin of our nation, over the sin of nations, over the sin of the world. Bottom line, a disciple of Jesus Christ is one who is serious about sin and who grieves and mourns over the sinfulness of sin in his own soul and in others. We are meant to grieve the sin of abortion. As I spoke about earlier, we are meant to grieve all sin, sinful motives, sinful thoughts, sinful actions, sinful words, and not just the biggies, not just sexual immorality, not just stealing and embezzlement and murder. No, we're to grieve even the lesser sins, as if lesser sins do not offend God, right? Do you think gossip offends God? Answer, yes. Do you think one person being angry at another offends God? Answer, yes. Do you think resentment building up in someone's soul offends God? Answer, yes. All sin is an offense against God. We can't pick and choose the biggies and the little ones. We should mourn and grieve our sin. Take abortion, for example. And I'm focused on abortion today because I think it's the greatest hypocrisy I've ever seen in our country today that so much outrage is on this, that, and the other and hardly even giving a word to the greatest injustice, not to mention sin, in this country, the sin of abortion. But why do we not grieve more over it? Why do we sometimes have remorse over a bad purchase? I had remorse over a bad purchase. I bought a watermelon. It looked like a really good watermelon. Renee told me what to look for, and it had every one of those characteristics. It's not Renee's fault. I'm not going to tell you where I bought it. Got it home, and you know when you cut it open, you get that kind of cracking sound? It had it. But when it split open, it was white. It was terrible. And I remember I was, I grieved over that bad purchase. I blew five bucks on that watermelon. And it was not from hope. Though I lost hope. 
Why can I have more remorse over a bad buyer's remorse, over a bad purchase? And maybe not even feel a stick in my soul against the sin of anger or the sin of abortion or the sin of stealing. Well, I have an answer why that is the case. And I suspect I'm not the only person here that has selective outrage, selective remorse over rather insignificant things while passing by being truly grieved over very, very serious things. We can be selective, right? For some who call themselves disciples, they just they, they lack godly grief due to a defective doctrine of sin. Defective doctrine of man, defective doctrine of sin. They have to believe man is basically good and why anyone would believe that today uh, is, is, a, is a brain twister to me. But nonetheless, they, may, they believe man is basically good or they believe that man is just simply sick in sin. Regardless, they in some way distort the doctrines of original sin and total depravity. They outright reject them. They have a wrong understanding. And so for those with a defective doctrine of sin, defective doctrine of man, it simply makes sense that, that they would struggle to grieve over sin because they really don't think sin's that big of an issue. But I'm not concerned about those folks. I'm concerned about us. What about you and me? What about people like you and me who are orthodox in my understanding of sin? Now, this isn't being prideful at all, but I would take probably anyone here in this congregation and put them up against anyone else to be able to give a robust doctrine of sin. I believe you can do it. Not because you're all that good at it, because you know the Bible, right? It's very important. We, we try to teach the truth, teach the Bible. And so we've talked time and time and time again about sin, and we should. We should have a robust doctrine of original sin, robust doctrine of total depravity, robust doctrine of actual sin. We believe that man is by nature dead in trespasses and sins, object of God's wrath. Of all people, we should grieve and mourn over sin. But the question is, do we? Are we more like the people that James wrote about in chapter 4 who are characterized by laughter? And unlike the people Martin Lloyd-Jones spoke of who are characterized by being serious. And I don't mean that we shouldn't have fun. I don't mean that we shouldn't be joyful. But I trust you understand the distinction I'm making here. That far too often we're just having a good time in life. And not really seeing and embracing the sinfulness of sin to the, to the degree that we should. The issue is not orthodoxy. I believe our church and churches like ours do a good job of teaching the truth of the Bible. Again, it's not being prideful. 
But it's one thing to know the truth. It's another thing to live consistent with it. I think our problem is in the area of orthopraxis. Orthodoxy, right doctrine. Orthopraxis, right living consistent with that right doctrine. And primarily the breakdown is this. We know what sin is. We can define it. We can take you to the Bible and we can show you what sin is. But we fail to own our sin. We fail to own our sin as a terrible offense against God. And how do I know that's a problem? Because most of us, if not all of us, blame shift. Hey, that's sin's not my fault. Um, maybe we rationalize. Everybody does this sin. It's not that bad. It's not that offensive. Come on. We offset it. Okay, I messed up there, but look how good I did here. Or maybe we'll say, I'll promise to do better in the future, kind of evangelical penance. We compare. I'm not like other men. Didn't somebody say that in the Bible? Like the Pharisee looking at a tax collector? <laughs> I'm not like other men. I'm good. I'm righteous. And so what do I base this understanding on? Well, look at King David. I would say that King David had a robust doctrine of sin. He was a man after God's own heart. It's not like David sinned and he went, Shazam! That's sin. He knew it was sin. And so he struggled. But, but, but David's problem was that he struggled to mourn over it. He committed adultery. He committed murder. He failed to be the king Israel needed. He was absent from duty. He was AWOL. And he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against the whole nation, not to mention he sinned against God, first and foremost. The sinfulness of his sin is clear to us as we read Psalm 51, as we pray Psalm 51. In the day, David's sin was clear to Nathan, who rebuked him, and David's sin eventually became known to him. And it became known to him by way of David coming to not only own his sin, I sin, but to own his sin as an offense against God. How do we know that? David said in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. Verse 4. David owned his sin, own offending God. And here's my point. Until we come to this place of orthopraxis, living consistent with our right doctrine, until we come to the place of seeing the sinfulness of sin, acknowledging the sinfulness of sin, owning the sinfulness of our sin, and the sin of others until we come to the place of not only owning our sin 
but acknowledging it and accepting it as an offense first and foremost against God will never grieve over sin. We can have every, every T crossed, every I dotted in our doctrinal database on sin and we'll never come to the place of being brokenhearted over our sin or anybody else's sin in the church or in the world. There is much in our own lives to lament. There is much in our community and in our nation for which to lament. There's much in our world to lament. We'll never lament. We'll never grieve to the extent that we should until we own sin and own it as an offense against God. I, God, have sinned against you. Or my fellow human being, my fellow Christian, has sinned against you. And please understand, I'm not suggesting that we take responsibility for anybody else's sin. We've, we've got enough on our own hands being responsible for our own mess. But we can mourn and grieve the sin of others. That's the point. We can mourn and grieve the sin of others as an offense against God, as well as mourning and grieving what we are responsible for, our own sin. Godly grief is constructive in the life of the disciple because it leads to deep repentance wherein one finds comfort and the resolve to restore. We do not lament for lamenting's sake. The second is the purpose of godly grief is repentance. Turn to 2 Corinthians 7, 10. This, this one verse just is so very, very clear. There Paul says in verse 10, 2 Corinthians 7, 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly grief leads to true repentance. What does it mean to repent? Thomas Watson, the English Puritan, sometimes I think the Puritans, we think of Pilgrim's Progress with John Bunyan who we studied that a while back and we just saw just a robust doctrine of sin, but a robust doctrine of salvation. I just think the Puritans are so helpful for us in our day to help us see the seriousness of sin and the glory of the saving work of Jesus Christ for us. And so Watson, in classic Puritan form, says a lot with little words. But he said this, six categories of sin. You may have heard this from me in the past, but I think it's very helpful. I try to recite it whenever I can. Watson said, because repentance is not saying, God, I'm sorry, done it again. I'll do better the next time. That's not repentance. Watson says, repentance is first seeing your sin. Secondly, sorrowing over your sin, grieving, godly repentance, I mean godly grief. Then confessing, and then being ashamed 
of it. I cannot, I am ashamed of offending you, God, to that degree. And hating it. And then finally turning from it. I think Watson helps us see that repentance is not sorry. It's deep and radical. Even to the point we might say that if you really want to judge if you've repented deeply I might just choose one of these and for me it would be they actually hate the sin so repentance is not just some casual God I'm sorry nor is repentance relief you know, sometimes I think we repent and we just simply want God to take away the consequences to our sin. There are always consequences to our actions. There are always consequences to sin. In the sixth chapter of Hosea, we read the, we, we give an insight into the people's repentance. So l- listen to this repentance in Hosea chapter 6 and verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. I want to suggest to you that in chapter 6 of Hosea, that repentance is saying this. God, I repent. Take away all the consequences. I need relief. God called Israel out on their false repentance in chapter 7 and verse 14. He says this with regard to the people's repentance in Hosea 6 and verse 1. In 7, 14, God says, They did not cry to me from their heart, but they well upon their beds for grain and wine. They gash themselves. They rebel against me. Do you you see? God said, what you did in chapter 6 is not true repentance. You're just wanting relief. Your cry, your repentance did not come from your heart. You did not cry out as a product of godly grief, as a a response to seeing the sinfulness of sin. True repentance begins with godly grief, shedding tears over sin, shedding tears over rebelling against God, over offending Him. It's a deep-seated thing. It's, It's crying out from a broken and contrite heart, Psalm 51. Verses 15 through 17. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for you will not delight in a sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise God's... A broken and contrite heart is precious to God. A godly one who is grieving over sin is precious to God. Similarly... In Joel, we read, Joel 2, 12 through 13. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Rend your heart. Another way to say it is that be in utter anguish over your sin and in utter anguish return to me repent 
true repentance. See, it comes from deep down inside. And what's the result of this? We see at the end of Hosea, chapter 14, verses 2 through 4, we read this. Take with you words, words of repentance, words that come from godly grief being broken and contrite. Take with you words and return to the Lord to repent and say, take away all my iniquity. And then in verse 4, God will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger has been turned from them. Godly grief leads to deep repentance, a crying out for God's mercy from a broken and contrite heart, a heart that is overcome with godly grief, that is overcome with the sinfulness of sin. The tax collector in Luke 18, in contrast to the Pharisee who thought himself righteous, is face down demonstrates mourning and grief by beating his breast. He owned his sin. He was the sinner, not just a sinner among many, but as if the only sinner in the entire world, the only one who's ever offended God. That's how this tax collector viewed himself. And he cried out in deep repentance, God be merciful to me, the sinner. And he went home justified, implying forgiven and restored. He experienced godly grief leading to repentance, producing comfort. Godly grief is constructive in the life of the disciple because it leads to deep repentance where one finds comfort and is enabled to resolve, to restore that which has been lying in ruins due to sin. Lloyd-Jones' statement that I read earlier, the Christian is not superficial in any sense, but is fundamentally serious, ends with this, and fundamentally happy. And fundamentally blessed. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to comfort comforted by the saving benefits of Christ. Jeremiah 31, I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness of sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Isaiah 61, one through two, just two verses. Jim read the fuller passage earlier the spirit of the lord is upon me because the lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our god to comfort all who mourn paul in romans 7 24 expresses godly grief over his personal sin in in a way that's very similar to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5. Paul said this, Wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? Paul understood as a believer the sinfulness of sin in his own soul. And he cried out from godly grief. And then he makes this confession and chapter 7 verse 25 and chapter 8 verse 1 thanks be to god through jesus christ our lord 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you see how godly grief leads to repentance, producing comfort? Producing comfort in the gospel? In the truth that Jesus came to forgive sinners? And to restore them? To bind up that which has been broken? To take the rubble and repair it and bring the wall back? to its former glory. And James chapter 4 and verse 9 that we read earlier that calls us to be mournful, to set aside our laughter and to get serious about sin says this in verse 10, humble yourself before the Lord and what? He will exalt you. He will lift you up. Godly grief, repentance, and comfort, even joy And ultimately, we see what will be our future in Revelation 21 and verse 4. This is for when Christ comes to consummate all things, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, nor former things have passed away. Yes, there'll be no more mourning over physical death. There'll be no more mourning over sin because sin will be put to death. That's our future. Hey, does that comfort you? If that doesn't comfort you, you have no idea what it means to grieve over sin. I'll just say it plainly like that. This should be like fresh, clear, cold, thirst-quenching water gushing over us. That as we're struggling today with sin, one day sin will be no more. We won't be God, but we'll be perfectly in the image of God. Where we'll no longer have to mourn over sin. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones, if you haven't figured this out by now, Martin Lloyd-Jones has a lot to say about the Beatitudes, as well as every other verse of Scripture. A deep doctrine of sin, a high doctrine of joy, and the two together produce this blessed, happy man who mourns and who at the same time is comforted. That is a disciple of Jesus Christ. Godly grief is constructive in the life of the disciple because it leads to deep repentance, wherein we find comfort and resolve to restore that which has been lying in ruins due to sin. But I want to re- uh, conclude with a story that I've heard this, this week. Many of you know Dr. George Grant. Uh, he's a PCA pastor outside of Nashville. And he does a little monthly segment on, on a World Magazine podcast just, just about words. And this last one from George is he, he defines the term a Jeremiah. Have you heard that? A Jeremiah. And he says it's a long and doleful complaint, a tale of sorrow, disappointment, and grief. It's a declaration of doom. And of course, the term a Jeremiah actually comes from a French word from the 1700s, but it's based on the prophet Jeremiah in the Bible, who is also called the weeping prophet. Lots of doom 
<laughs> in Jeremiah. And so this, this term can be used in a positive sense or a negative sense. It could be actually a term of ridicule for someone who's on this rant about something. So that's what Jeremiah had. It's a, it's a derogatory, it has a derogatory meaning uh, to it. But in this discussion that Grant was, was having on this podcast, he said that many would say that the year 2020 is best described as a Jeremiah. Have we not experienced one thing after another so far this year. And who knows what's coming down the road. I mean, there's a lot of doom and gloom that we've heard in or from those in our culture uh, today. But Grant coined a new word. It's not a Jeremiah, but he coined this term, a Nehemiah. Obviously, from the reformer Nehemiah in the book of Nehemiah in the Bible. Nehemiah had been exiled to Babylon. Of course, Jeremiah says that God's people will be exiled for 70 years because of their sin. Jerusalem was conquered by Nebuchadnezzar and the people in 586, 587 taken exile in Babylon. Nehemiah was there. He rises to power as the cupbearer to the king. Very important position in Nehemiah chapter 1 we learn that he learns of the wall in Jerusalem that that was lying in ruins and he prayed he mourned and grieved over the wall being in ruin and the reason the wall was in ruin rebellion against God he also repented on behalf of the nation and he also sought God that he could return to repair and restore that which had been lying in ruins due to the sin of the people. Godly grief is constructive. In the life of the disciple, because it leads to repentance, wherein we find comfort from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and forgiveness and all the saving benefits of Christ and are enabled to resolve to seek to restore that which lies in ruin due to sin. A Nehemiah is constructive. That should be the view we have of 2020 and the years that come after us. A Nehemiah may be the best way to understand Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, for they shall be brought to deep repentance, for they shall seek the Lord in rebuilding and restoring that which has been lying in ruins due to sin. Godly grief is constructive in the life of the disciple because it leads to comfort and repentance and a resolve to restore. Let us pray. Father in heaven, 
I am just reminded of the end of the passage of scripture that that was read earlier. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. Father, that's the purpose of godly grief in us. It's constructive to build up and to restore. And our prayer is, God, that first that you would bring us to the place of more and more grieving over the sinfulness of sin as an offense against you. Not only in our own lives, but also in the lives of others and our world. And Father, that we would see the purpose is to lead us to deep repentance where we own our sin and cry out from the depths of our broken heart for your mercy. And that as we do that, that we, we would know of your comforting, your comforting grace that reminds us that our future is one of joy and no tears and no mourning. And that we would seek you, Father, that by your grace, that we would be part of that restoration project in rebuilding that which has been ruined by sin in our own lives and in the lives of others as your grace allows. And we pray and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.